1994, when Boeing first published safety data showing a clear correlation between a country's plane crashes and its score on Hofstede's dimensions, the company's researchers practically tied themselves in knots, trying not to draw a fence. We're not saying there's anything here, but we think there's something there, is how Boeing's chief engineer for airplane safety put it. Why are we so squeamish? Why is the fact that each of us comes from a culture with its own distinctive mix of strengths and weaknesses, tendencies and predispositions, so difficult to acknowledge? We cannot pretend that each of us is a product simply of our own lives and experiences. When we ignore culture, planes crash. Back to the cockpit. Today, weather radar has helped us a lot. No pilot would say that now. But this was 1997, before Korean Air took its power distance issues seriously. The captain was tired, and the engineer's true meaning sailed over his head. Yes, the captain says in response, they are very useful. He isn't listening. The plane is flying towards the VOR beacon, and the VOR is on the side of a mountain. The weather hasn't broken, so the pilots can't see anything. The captain puts the landing gear down and extends the flaps. At 1.41 and 48 seconds, the captain says, Wiper on, and the flight engineer turns them on. It's raining now. At 1.41 and 59 seconds, the first officer asks, Not in sight? He's looking for the runway. He can't see it. He's had a sinking feeling in his stomach for some time now. One second later, the ground proximity warning system calls out in its toneless electronic voice, 500 feet. The plane is 500 feet off the ground. The ground, in this case, is the side of Nimitz Hill. But the crew is confused because they think that the ground means the runway. And how can that be if they can't see the runway? The flight engineer says, eh? in an astonished tone of voice. You can imagine them all thinking, furiously, trying to square their assumption of where the plane is with what their instruments are telling them. At 1.42 and 19 seconds, the first officer says, let's make a missed approach. He has finally upgraded from a hint to a crew obligation. He wants to abort the landing. Later in the crash investigation, it was determined that if he had seized control of the plane in that moment, there would have been enough time to pull up the nose and clear Nimitz Hill. This is what first officers are trained to do when they believe a captain is clearly in the wrong. But it is one thing to learn that in a classroom, and quite another to actually do it, in the air, with someone who might wrap you with the back of his hand if you make a mistake. One forty-two and 20 seconds. Flight engineer. Not in sight. Finally, with disaster staring them in the face, the first officer and the engineer speak up. They want the captain to go around, to pull up and start the landing over again. But it's too late. 1.42 and 21 seconds. First officer. Not in sight. Missed approach. 1.42 and 22 seconds. Flight engineer. Go around. 1.42 and 23 seconds. Captain. Go around. 1.42 and 24 seconds. Ground proximity warning. GPW. 100 feet. 1.42 and 24 seconds and 84 one hundredths. GPW. 50. GPW, 40. GPW, 30. GPW, 20. 142, 25 seconds and 78 one hundredths. Sound of initial impact. 142, 28 seconds and 65 one hundredths. Sound of tone. 142, 28 seconds and 91 one hundredths. Sound of groans. 142, and 30 seconds and 54 one hundredths. Sound of tone. End of recording. Chapter 8. Rice Paddies and Math Tests No one who can rise before dawn, 360 days a year, fails to make his family rich. The gateway to the industrial heartland of southern China runs up through the wide, verdant swath of the Pearl River Delta. The land is covered by a thick, smoggy haze. The freeways are crammed with tractor-trailers. Power lines crisscross the landscape. 
Factories making cameras, computers, watches, and umbrellas and T-shirts stand cheek by jowl with densely packed blocks of apartment buildings and fields of banana and mango trees, sugarcane, papaya, and pineapple destined for the export market. A generation ago, the skies would have been clear and the road would have been a two-lane highway. And a generation before that, all you would have seen would have been rice paddies. Two hours in, at the headwaters of the Pearl River, lies the city of Guangzhou. And past Guangzhou, remnants of the old China are easier to find. The countryside becomes breathtakingly beautiful. Rolling hills dotted with outcroppings of limestone rock against the backdrop of the Nanling Mountains. Here and there are the traditional khaki-colored mud-brick huts of the Chinese peasantry. In the small towns, there are open-air markets, chicken and geese in elaborate bamboo baskets, vegetables laid out in rows on the ground, slabs of pork on tables, tobacco being sold in big clumps. And everywhere there is rice, miles upon miles of it. In the winter season, the paddies are dry and dotted with the stubble of the previous year's crop. After planting in early spring, as the humid winds begin to blow, they turn a magical green. And by the time of the first harvest, as the grains emerge on the ends of the rice shoots, the land becomes an unending sea of yellow. Rice has been cultivated in China for thousands of years. It was from China that the techniques of rice cultivation spread throughout East Asia, Japan, Korea, Singapore, and Taiwan. Year in, year out, as far back as history is recorded, farmers from across Asia have engaged in the same relentless, intricate pattern of agriculture. Rice paddies are built, not opened up in the way a wheat field is. You don't just clear the trees, underbrush, and stones, and then plow. Rice fields are carved into mountainsides in an elaborate series of terraces, or painstakingly constructed from marshland and river plains. A rice paddy has to be irrigated, so an elaborate series of dikes have to be built around the field. Channels must be dug from the nearest water source, and gates built into the dikes so the water flow can be adjusted precisely to cover the right amount of the plant. The paddy itself, meanwhile, has to have a hard clay floor. Otherwise, the water will simply seep into the ground. But of course, you can't plant rice seedlings in hard clay. So on top of the clay, there has to be a thick, soft layer of mud. And the clay pan, as it's called, has to be carefully engineered so that it will drain properly and also keep the plants submerged at the optimal level. Rice has to be fertilized repeatedly, which is another art. Traditionally, farmers used night soil, human manure, and a combination of burned compost, river mud, bean cake, and hemp, used carefully, because too much fertilizer, or the right amount applied at the wrong time, can be as bad as too little. When the time came to plant, a Chinese farmer would have hundreds of different varieties to choose from, each of which offered a slightly different trade-off between yield and, say, how quickly it grew, or how well it did in times of drought, or how it fared in poor soils. A farmer might plant a dozen or more different varieties at one time, adjusting the mix from season to season in order to manage the risk of a crop failure. He or she, or more accurately, the whole family, since rice agriculture was a family affair, would plant the seed in a specially prepared seedbed. After a few weeks, the seedlings would be transplanted into the field in carefully spaced rows six inches apart and then painstakingly nurtured. Weeding was done by hand, diligently and unceasingly, because the seedlings could easily be choked by other plant life. Sometimes each rice shoot would be individually groomed with a bamboo comb to clear away insects. All the while, farmers had to check and recheck water levels and make sure the water didn't get too hot in the summer sun. And when the rice ripened, farmers gathered all of their friends and relatives and in one coordinated burst harvested it as quickly as possible so they could get the second crop in and harvest it before the winter dry season began. Breakfast in South China, at least for those who could afford it, is congee, white rice porridge with lettuce and dace paste and bamboo shoots. Lunch is more congee. Dinner is rice with toppings. Rice was what you sold at the market to buy the other necessities of life. 
It was how wealth and status were measured. It dictated almost every working moment of every day. Rice is life, says the anthropologist Gonzalo Santos, who has studied a traditional South Chinese village. Without rice, you don't survive. If you want to be anyone in this part of China, you would have had to have rice. It made the world go round. Take the following list of numbers. 4853976. Spend 20 seconds memorizing that sequence before saying them out loud again. If you speak English, you have about a 50% chance of remembering that sequence perfectly. If you're Chinese, though, you're almost certain to get it right every time. Why is that? Because, as human beings, we store digits in a memory loop that runs for about two seconds. We most easily memorize whatever we can say or read within that two-second span. And Chinese speakers get that list of numbers, 4853976, right every time because, unlike English speakers, their language allows them to fit all those seven numbers into two seconds. That example comes from Stanislas Dahana's book, The Number Sense, and as Dahana explains, Chinese number words are remarkably brief. Most of them can be uttered in less than one quarter of a second. For instance, four is si and seven qi. Their English equivalents, four, seven, are longer. Pronouncing them takes about one-third of a second. The memory gap between English and Chinese apparently is entirely due to this difference in length. In languages as diverse as Welsh, Arabic, Chinese, English, and Hebrew, there is a reproducible correlation between the time required to pronounce numbers in a given language and the memory span of its speakers. In this domain, the prize for efficacy goes to the Cantonese dialect of Chinese, whose brevity grants residents of Hong Kong a rocketing memory span of about 10 digits. It turns out that there is also a big difference in how number naming systems in Western and Asian languages are constructed. In English, we say 14, 16, 17, 18, and 19. So one might think that we would also say 1 teen, 2 teen, and 3 teen, but we don't. We make up a different form, 11, 12, 13, and 15. Similarly, we have 40 and 60, which sound like what they are, but we also say 50 and 30 and 20, which sort of sound what they are, but not really. And for that matter, for numbers above 20, we put the decade first and the unit number second, 21, 22. For the teens, though, we do it the other way around. We put the decade second and the unit number first, 14, 17, 18. The number system in English is highly irregular. Not so in China, Japan, and Korea. They have a logical counting system. 11 is 10 1, 12 is 10 2, 24 is 2 10 4, and so on. That difference means that Asian children learn to count much faster than their American counterparts. Four-year-old Chinese children can count, on average, up to 40. American children at that age can only count to 15. And most don't reach 40 until they're five. By the age of five, in other words, American children are already a year behind their Asian counterparts in the most fundamental of math skills. The regularity of their number system also means that Asian children can perform basic functions, like addition, far more easily. Ask an English seven-year-old to add 37 plus 22 in her head, and she has to convert the words to numbers, 37 plus 22. Only then can she do the math. 2 plus 7 is 9, and 30 and 20 is 50, which makes 59. Ask an Asian child to add 3 tens 7 and 2 tens 2, and then the necessary equation is right there embedded in the sentence. No number translation is necessary. It's 5 tens 9. The Asian system is transparent, says Karen Fusion, a Northwestern University psychologist who has done much of the research on Asian-Western differences. I think that it makes the whole attitude towards math different. Instead of being a rote learning thing, there's a pattern I can figure out. There is an expectation that I can do this. There is an expectation that it's sensible. For fractions, we say three-fifths. The Chinese is literally, out of five parts, take three. That's telling you conceptually what a fraction is. It's differentiating the denominator and the numerator.
The much-storied disenchantment with mathematics among Western children starts in the third and fourth grade, and Fusen argues that perhaps a part of that disenchantment is due to the fact that math doesn't seem to make sense. Its linguistic structure is clumsy. Its basic rules seem arbitrary and complicated. Asian children, by contrast, don't face nearly that same sense of bafflement. They can hold more numbers in their head and do calculations faster, and the way fractions are expressed in their language corresponds exactly to the way a fraction really is, and maybe that makes them a little bit more likely to enjoy math. And maybe because they enjoy math a little more, they try a little harder and take more math classes and are more willing to do their homework and on and on in a kind of virtuous circle. When it comes to math, in other words, Asians have a built-in advantage, but it's an unusual kind of advantage. For years, students from China, South Korea, and Japan, and children of recent immigrants from those countries, have substantially outperformed their Western counterparts at mathematics. And the assumption has always been that that must have something to do with some kind of innate Asian proclivity for math. The psychologist Richard Lin has even gone so far as to propose an elaborate evolutionary theory involving the Himalayas, really cold weather, pre-modern hunting practices, brain size, and specialized vowel sounds to explain why he believes Asians have higher IQs. That's how we think about math. We assume that being good at things like calculus and algebra is a simple function of how smart you are. But looking at the differences in number systems between East and West suggests something very different. That being good at math may also be something rooted in a group's culture. In the case of the Koreans, one kind of deeply rooted legacy stood in the way of the very modern task of flying an airplane. Here we have another kind of legacy, one that turns out to be perfectly suited for 21st century tasks. Cultural legacies matter. And once you've seen the surprising effect of things like power distance and numbers that can be said in a quarter as opposed to a third of a second, It's hard not to wonder how many other cultural legacies are there that have an impact on 21st century intellectual tasks. What if coming from a culture shaped by the demands of growing rice also makes you better at math? Could the rice paddy make a difference in the classroom? The most striking fact about a rice paddy, which you never quite grasp until you actually stand in the middle of one, is its size. It's tiny. A moo which roughly corresponds to the size of a typical rice paddy, is one-fifteenth of a hectare. That's about as big as a hotel room. A typical Asian rice farm is two or three mu. A village in China of 1,500 people might support itself entirely with 450 acres of land, which in the American Midwest would be the size of a typical family farm. At that scale with families of five and six people living off a farm the size of two hotel rooms, agriculture changes dramatically. Historically, Western agriculture has been mechanically oriented. In the West, if a farmer wanted to become more efficient or increase his yield, he introduced more and more sophisticated equipment, which allowed him to replace human labor with mechanical labor. A threshing machine, a hay baler, a combine harvester, a tractor. He cleared another field and increased his acreage because now his machinery allowed him to work more land with the same amount of effort. But in Japan or China, farmers didn't have the money to buy equipment. And in any case, there certainly wasn't any extra land that could easily be converted into new fields. So rice farmers improved their yields by becoming smarter, by becoming better managers of their own time, and by making better choices. As the anthropologist Francesca Bray puts it, rice agriculture is skill-oriented. If you're willing to weed a bit more diligently and become more adept at fertilizing and spend a bit more time monitoring water levels and do a better job keeping the clay pan absolutely level and make use of every square inch of your moo, you'll harvest a bigger crop. Throughout history, not surprisingly, the people who grow rice have always worked harder than almost any other kind of farmer. That last statement may seem a little odd, because we have a sense that everyone in the pre-modern world worked really hard. But that simply isn't true. 
all of us, for example, are descended at some point from hunter-gatherers, and many hunter-gatherers, by all accounts, had a pretty leisurely life. The Kung Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert in Botswana, who are one of the last remaining practitioners of that way of life, subsist in large part on the Mongongo nut, an incredibly plentiful and protein-rich source of food that lies thick on the ground. They don't grow anything, and it's growing things, preparing, planting, weeding, harvesting, storing, that takes time, nor do they raise any animals. Occasionally, the male kung hunt, but chiefly for sport. All told, kung men and women work no more than 12 to 19 hours a week, with a balance of the time spent dancing, entertaining, and visiting family and friends. That's, at most, a thousand hours a year of work. When a Kung Bushman was asked once why his people hadn't taken to agriculture, he looked puzzled and said, Why should we plant when there are so many mongongo nuts in the world? Or consider the life of a peasant in 18th century Europe. Men and women in those days probably worked from dawn to noon, 200 days a year, which works out to about 1,200 hours of work annually. During harvest or spring planting, the day might be longer. In the winter, much less. In the discovery of France, the historian Graham Robb writes that peasant life in a country like France, even well into the 19th century, was essentially brief episodes of work followed by long periods of idleness. 99% of all human activity described in this and other accounts of French country life, he writes, took place between late spring and early autumn. In the Pyrenees and the Alps, entire villages would essentially hibernate from the time of the first snow in November until March or April. In more temperate regions of France, where temperatures in the winter rarely fell below freezing, the same pattern held. Rob continues, The fields of Flanders were deserted for much of the year. An official report on the Nieve in 1844 described the strange mutation of the Burgundian day laborer once the harvest was in and the vine stalks had been burned. After making the necessary repairs to their tools, these vigorous men will now spend their days in bed, packing their bodies tightly together in order to stay warm and eat less food. They weaken themselves deliberately. Human hibernation was a physical and economic necessity. Lowering the metabolic rate prevented hunger from exhausting supplies. People trudged and dawdled, even in summer. After the revolution, in Alsace and the Pas de Calais, officials complained that wine growers and independent farmers, instead of undertaking some peaceful and sedentary industry in the quieter season, abandoned themselves to dumb idleness. If you were a peasant farmer in southern China, by contrast, you didn't sleep through the winter. In the short break marked by the dry season, from November through February, you busied yourself with side tasks. You made bamboo baskets or hats and sold them in the market. You repaired the dikes in your rice paddy and rebuilt your mud hut. You sent one of your sons to work in a nearby village for a relative. You made tofu and dried bean curd and caught snakes, they were a delicacy, and trapped insects. By the time the turning of the spring came, you were back in the fields at dawn. Working in a rice field is 10 to 20 times more labor-intensive than working on an equivalently sized corn or wheat field. Some estimates put the annual workload of a wet rice farmer in Asia at 3,000 hours a year. Think for a moment about what the life of a rice farmer in the Pearl River Delta must have been like. 3,000 hours a year is a staggering amount of time to spend working, particularly if many of those hours involve being bent over in the hot sun, planting and weeding in a rice paddy. What redeemed the life of a rice farmer, however, was the nature of that work. It was a lot like the garment work done by the Jewish immigrants to New York. It was meaningful. First of all, there is a clear relationship in rice farming between effort and reward. The harder you work a rice field, the more it yields. Second, it's complex. The rice farmer isn't simply planting in the spring and harvesting in the fall. He or she is effectively a small businessman, juggling a family workforce, 
hedging uncertainty through seed selection, building and managing a sophisticated irrigation system, coordinating the complex process of harvesting the first crop while simultaneously preparing the second crop. And most of all, it's autonomous. The peasants of Europe worked essentially as low-paid slaves of an aristocratic landlord with little control over their own destinies. But China and Japan never developed that kind of oppressive feudal system because feudalism simply can't work in a rice economy. Growing rice is too complicated and intricate for a system that requires farmers to be coerced and bullied into going out into the fields each morning. By the 14th and 15th centuries, landlords in central and southern China had an almost completely hands-off relationship with their tenants. They would collect a fixed rent and let farmers go about their business. The thing about wet rice farming is not only that you need phenomenal amounts of labor, but it's very exacting, says the historian Kenneth Pomerantz. You have to care. It really matters that the field is perfectly leveled before you flood it. Getting it close to level but not quite right makes a big difference in terms of your yield. It really matters that the water is in the fields for just the right amount of time. There's a big difference between lining up the seedlings at exactly the right distance and doing it sloppily. It's not like you put the corn in the ground in mid-March and as long as the rain comes by the end of the month, you're okay. You're controlling all the inputs in a very direct way. And when you have something that requires that much care, the overlord has to have a system that gives the actual laborer some set of incentives where if the harvest comes out well, the farmer gets a bigger share. That's why you get fixed rents, where the landlord says, I get 20 bushels, regardless of the harvest, and if it's really good, you get the extra. It's a crop that doesn't do very well with something like slavery or wage labor. It would just be too easy to leave the gate that controls the irrigation water open a few seconds too long, and there goes your field. The historian David Arkush once compared Russian and Chinese peasant proverbs, and the differences are striking. If God does not bring it, the earth will not give it, is a typical Russian proverb. That's the kind of fatalism and pessimism typical of a repressive feudal system, where peasants had no reason to believe in the efficacy of their own work. On the other hand, Arkush writes, Chinese proverbs are striking in their belief that hard work shrewd planning and self-reliance or cooperation with a small group will, in time, bring recompense. Here are some of the things that penniless peasants would say to one another as they worked 3,000 hours a year in the baking heat and humidity of Chinese rice paddies, which, by the way, are filled with leeches. No food without blood and sweat. Farmers are busy, farmers are busy. If farmers weren't busy, where would grain to get through the winter come from? In the winter, the lazy man freezes to death. Don't depend on heaven for food, but on your own two hands carrying the load. Useless to ask about the crops, it all depends on hard work and fertilizer. If a man works hard, the land will not be lazy. And then, most telling of all, no one who can rise before dawn 360 days fails to make his family rich. Rise before dawn? 360 days a year? For the Kung, leisurely gathering mongongo nuts, or the French peasant sleeping away the winter, or anyone else living in something other than the world of rice cultivation, that proverb would be unthinkable. This is not, of course, an unfamiliar observation about Asian culture. Go to a college campus, and students will say that the Asian students are overwhelmingly the ones studying at the library, long after everyone else has left. Some people of Asian background, understandably, get offended when people talk about their culture this way because they sense that the stereotype is being used as a form of disparagement. But a belief in work is in fact a thing of beauty. Virtually every success story we've seen in this book so far involves someone or some group working harder than their peers. Bill Gates was addicted to his work screen as a child. So was Bill Joy. The Beatles put in thousands of hours of practice in Hamburg. Joe Flom ground away for years perfecting the art of takeovers before he got his chance. Working really hard is what successful people do. 
And the genius of the culture formed in the rice paddies is that hard work gave those in the fields a way to find meaning in the midst of great hardship and poverty. That lesson has served Asians well in many endeavors, but rarely so perfectly as in the case of mathematics. A few years ago, Alan Schoenfeld, a math professor at Berkeley, made a videotape of a woman named Renee as she was trying to solve a math problem. Renee was in her mid-twenties, with long black hair and round glasses. In the tape, she's playing with a software program designed to teach algebra. On the screen is an X and a Y axis. The program asks you to punch in a set of coordinates, and then it draws a line for you on the screen. At this point, I'm sure some vague memory of your middle school algebra is coming back to you. But rest assured, you don't need to remember any of it to understand the significance of Renee's example. In fact, as you listen to Renee talking, don't focus on what she's saying, but rather on why and how she's talking the way she is. The point of the computer program, which Schoenfeld had created, was to teach students about how to calculate the slope of a line. Slope, as I'm sure you remember, or more accurately, as I'll bet you don't remember, I certainly didn't, is rise over run. So if you typed in 5 on the y-axis and 5 on the x-axis, the slope would be 1, 5 over 5. So there is Renee. She's sitting at the keyboard, and she's trying to figure out what numbers to enter in order to get the computer to draw a line that is absolutely vertical, that is directly superimposed over the y-axis. Now, those of you who remember your high school math will know that this is, in fact, impossible. A vertical line has an undefined slope. Its rise is infinite. Any number on the y-axis, starting at zero and going on forever. Its run on the x-axis, meanwhile, is zero. Infinity divided by zero is not a number. But Renee doesn't realize that what she's trying to do can't be done. She is, rather, in the grip of what Schoenfeld calls a glorious misconception. And the reason why Schoenfeld likes to show this particular tape is that it is a perfect demonstration of how Renee came to resolve this misconception. Renee was a nurse. She wasn't someone who had been particularly interested in mathematics in the past, but she had somehow gotten hold of the software and was hooked. Now what I want to do is make a straight line with this formula parallel to the y-axis, she begins. Schoenfeld is sitting next to her. She looks over at him anxiously. It's been five years since I did any of this. She starts to fiddle with the program, typing in different numbers. Now, if I change the slope that way, minus one, now what I mean to do is make the line go straight. As she types in numbers, the line on the screen changes. Oops, that's not going to do it. She looks puzzled. What are you trying to do? Schoenfeld asks. What I'm trying to do is make a straight line parallel to the y-axis. What do I need to do here? I think what I need to do is change this a little bit. She points at the place where the number for the y-axis is. That was something I discovered, that when you go from 1 to 2, there was a rather big change. But now if you get way up there, you have to keep changing. This is Renee's glorious misconception. She's noticed the higher she makes the y-axis coordinate, the steeper the line gets. So she thinks the key to making a vertical line is just making the y-axis coordinate large enough. I guess 12 or even 13 could do it. Maybe even as much as 15, she says. She frowns. She and Schoenfeld go back and forth. She asks him questions. He prods her gently in the right direction. She keeps trying and trying, one approach after another. At one point, she types in 20. The line gets a little steeper. She types in 40. The line gets steeper still. I see that there is a relationship there, but as to why, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. What if I do 80? If 40 gets me halfway, then then 80 should get me all the way to the y-axis. So let's just see what happens. She types in 80. The line is steeper still, but it's not totally vertical. Ooh, it's infinity, isn't it? It's never going to get there. 
Renee is close, but then she reverts to her original misconception. So what do I need, a hundred? Every time you double the number, you get halfway to the y-axis, but it never gets there. She types in a hundred. It's closer, but not quite there yet. She starts to think out loud. It's obvious she's on the verge of figuring something out. Well, I knew this, though, but I knew that. For each one up, it goes that many over. I'm still somewhat confused as to why. She pauses, squinting at the screen. I'm getting confused. It's a tenth of the way to the one, but I don't want it to be. And then she sees it. Oh, it's any number up and zero over. It's any number divided by zero. Her face lights up. A vertical line is anything divided by zero, and that's an undefined number. Oh, okay, now I see. The slope of a vertical line is undefined. Ah, that means something now. I won't forget that. Over the course of his career, Schoenfeld has videotaped countless students as they worked on math problems. But the René tape is one of his favorites because of how beautifully it illustrates what he considers to be the secret to learning mathematics. Twenty-two minutes pass from the moment René begins playing with the computer to the moment she says, Ah, that means something now. That's a long time. This is eighth-grade mathematics, Schoenfeld said. If I put the average eighth grader in the same position as Renee, I'm guessing that after the first few attempts, they would have said, I don't get it. I need you to explain it. Schoenfeld once asked a group of high school students how long they would work on a homework question before they concluded it was too hard for them ever to solve. Their answers ranged from 30 seconds to five minutes, with the average answer two minutes. But Renee persists. She experiments. She goes back over the same issues time and time again. She thinks out loud. She keeps going and going. She simply won't give up. She knows on some vague level that there is something wrong with her theory about how to draw a vertical line, and she won't stop until she's absolutely sure she has it right. Renee wasn't a math natural. Abstract concepts like slope and undefined clearly didn't come easily to her but Schoenfeld could not have found her more impressive. There's a will to make sense that drives what she does, Schoenfeld says. She wouldn't accept a superficial, yeah, you're right, and walk away. That's not who she is. And that's really unusual. He rewound the tape and pointed to a moment when René reacted with genuine surprise to something on the screen. Look, he said, she does a double take. Many students would just let that fly by. Instead, she thought, that doesn't jibe with whatever I'm thinking. I don't get it. That's important. I want an explanation. And when she finally gets the explanation, she says, yeah, that fits. At Berkeley, Schoenfeld teaches a course on problem solving, the entire point of which, he says, is to get his students to unlearn the mathematical habits they picked up on the way to university. I pick a problem that I don't know how to solve, he says. I tell my students, you're going to have a two-week take-home exam. I know your habits. You're going to do nothing for the first week and start it the next week. And I want to warn you now, if you only spend one week on this, you're not going to solve it. If, on the other hand, you start working the day I give you the midterm, you'll be frustrated. You'll come to me and say, it's impossible. I'll tell you to keep working, and by week two, you'll find you'll make significant progress. We sometimes think of being good at mathematics as an innate ability. You either have it or you don't. But to Schoenfeld, it's not so much ability as attitude. You master mathematics if you are willing to try. That's what Schoenfeld attempts to teach his students. Success is a function of persistence and doggedness and the willingness to work hard for 22 minutes to make sense of something that most people would give up on after 30 seconds. Put a bunch of Renés in a classroom and give them the space and time to explore mathematics for themselves, and you could go a long way. Or imagine a country where Renés' doggedness is not the exception, but a cultural trait, embedded as deeply as the culture of honor in the Cumberland Plateau. Now that would be a country good at math.
Every four years, an international group of educators administers a comprehensive mathematics and science test to elementary and junior high school students around the world. It's called the TIMS, the same test we discussed earlier when looking at differences between fourth graders born near the beginning of a school cutoff date and those born near the end of the date. And the point of the TIMS is to allow us to compare the educational achievement of one country with another. When students sit down to take the TIMS exam, they also have to fill out a questionnaire. It asks them all kinds of things, such as what their parents' level of education is, or what their views about math are, or what their friends are like. It's not a trivial exercise. It's about 120 questions long. In fact, it is so tedious and demanding that many students leave as many as 10 or 20 questions blank. Now here's the interesting part. As it turns out, the average number of items answered on the TIMS questionnaire varies from country to country. It is possible, in fact, to rank all the participating countries according to how many items their students answer on the questionnaire. Now, what do you think happens if you compare the questionnaire rankings with the math rankings? They're almost exactly the same. In other words, countries whose students are willing to concentrate and sit still long enough and focus on answering every single question in an endless questionnaire are the same countries whose students do the best job of solving math problems. The person who discovered this fact is an educational researcher at the University of Pennsylvania named Erling Bowe, and he stumbled across it by accident. It came out of the blue, he says. Bowe hasn't even been able to publish his findings in a scientific journal because, he says, it's just a bit too weird. Remember, he's not saying that the ability to finish the questionnaire and to excel on the math test is related. He's saying that they're the same, that if you compare the two rankings, they are identical. Think about this another way. Imagine that every year there was a math Olympics in some fabulous city in the world, and every country in the world sent its own team of 1,000 eighth graders. Bo's point is that we could predict precisely the order in which every country would finish in the Math Olympics without asking a single math question. All you'd have to do is to give them some task measuring how hard they were willing to work. In fact, we wouldn't even have to give them a task. We should be able to predict which countries are best at math simply by looking at which national cultures place the highest emphasis on effort and hard work. So which places are at the top of both lists? The answer shouldn't surprise you. Singapore, South Korea, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Japan. What those five have in common, of course, is that they are all cultures shaped by the tradition of wet rice agriculture and meaningful work. They are the kinds of places where, for hundreds of years, penniless peasants slaving away in the rice paddies 3,000 hours a year would say things to each other like, No one who can rise before dawn 360 days a year fails to make his family rich. Chapter 9 Marita's Bargain All my friends are from Kip. In the mid-1990s, an experimental public school called the Kip Academy opened on the fourth floor of Lou Gehrig Junior High School in New York City. Lou Gehrig is in the 7th School District, otherwise known as the South Bronx, one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. It's a squat, gray, 1960s-era building across the street from a bleak collection of high-rises. A few blocks over is Grand Concourse, the borough's main thoroughfare. These are not streets that you'd happily walk down alone after dark. Kip is a middle school. Classes are large. The fifth grade has two sections of 35 students each. There are no entrance exams or admissions requirements. Students are chosen by lottery, with any fourth grader living in the Bronx eligible to apply. Roughly half of the students are African American, the rest Hispanic. Three quarters of the students come from single parent homes. 90% qualify for free or reduced lunch 
which is to say that their families earn so little that the federal government chips in so they can eat properly at lunchtime. KIPP seems like the kind of school in the kind of neighborhood with the kind of student that would make educators despair, except that the minute you walk through the door, it's clear that something is different. The students walk quietly down the hallways in single file. In the classroom, they are taught to turn and address anyone talking to them in a protocol known as suslant. Smile, sit up, listen, ask questions, and nod when being spoken to, and track with your eyes. On the walls of the school's corridors are hundreds of pennants from the colleges that Kipp's graduates have gone on to attend. Last year, hundreds of families from across the Bronx entered the lottery for Kipp's 48 fifth-grade slots. It is no exaggeration to say that just over 10 years into its existence, KIPP has become one of the most desirable public schools in New York City. What KIPP is most famous for is mathematics. In the South Bronx, only something like 16% of all middle school students are performing at or above their grade level in math. But at KIPP, by the end of the fifth grade, many of the students call math their favorite subject. In 7th grade, KIPP students start high school algebra. By the end of 8th grade, 84% of the students are performing at or above their grade level, which is to say that this motley group of randomly chosen lower-income kids from dingy apartments in one of the country's worst neighborhoods, whose parents, in an overwhelming number of cases, have never set foot in a college do as well in mathematics as the privileged 8th graders of America's wealthy suburbs. Our kids' reading is on point, said David Levin, who founded KIPP with a fellow teacher, Michael Feinberg, in 1994. They struggle a little bit with their writing skills, but when they leave here, they rock in math. There are now more than 50 KIPP schools across the United States, with more on the way. The KIPP program represents one of the most promising new educational philosophies in the United States. But its success is best understood not in terms of its curriculum, its teachers, its resources, or some kind of institutional innovation. KIPP is, rather, an organization that has succeeded by taking the idea of cultural legacies seriously. In the early 19th century, a group of reformers set out to establish a system of public education in the United States. What passed for public school at the time was a haphazard assortment of locally run one-room schoolhouses and overcrowded urban classrooms scattered around the country. In rural areas, schools closed in the spring and fall and ran all summer long so that children could help out in the busy planting and harvesting seasons. In the city, Many schools mirrored the long and chaotic schedules of the children's working-class parents. The reformers wanted to make sure that all children went to school and that public school was comprehensive, meaning that all children got enough schooling to learn how to read and write and do basic arithmetic and function as productive citizens. But as the historian Kenneth Gold has pointed out, the early educational reformers were also tremendously concerned that children not get too much schooling. In 1871, for example, the United States Commissioner of Education published a report by Edward Jarvis on the relation of education to insanity. Jarvis had studied 1,741 cases of insanity and concluded that overstudy was responsible for 205 of them. Education lays the foundation of a large portion of the causes of mental disorder, Jarvis wrote. Similarly, the pioneer of public education in Massachusetts, Horace Mann, believed that working students too hard would create a most pernicious influence upon character and habits. Not infrequently is health itself destroyed by overstimulating the mind. In the education journals of the day, there were constant worries about overtaxing students or blunting their natural abilities through too much schoolwork. The reformers, Gold writes, strove for ways to reduce time spent studying because long periods of respite could save the mind from injury. Hence the elimination of Saturday classes, the shortening of the school day, and the lengthening of vacation, 
all of which occurred over the course of the 19th century. Teachers were cautioned that when students are required to study, their bodies should not be exhausted by long confinement, nor their minds bewildered by prolonged application. Rest also presented particular opportunities for strengthening cognitive and analytical skills. As one contributor to the Massachusetts teacher suggested, it is when thus relieved from the state of tension belonging to actual study that boys and girls, as well as men and women, acquire the habit of thought and reflection and of forming their own conclusions independently of what they are taught and the authority of others. This idea that effort must be balanced by rest could not be more different from Asian notions about study and work, of course. But then again, the Asian worldview was shaped by the rice paddy. In the Pearl River Delta, the rice farmer planted two and sometimes three crops a year. The land was fallow only briefly. In fact, one of the singular features of rice cultivation is that because of the nutrients carried by the water used in irrigation, the more a plot of land is cultivated, the more fertile it gets. But in Western agriculture, the opposite is true. Unless a field is left fallow every few years, the soil becomes exhausted. Every winter, fields are empty. The hard labor of spring planting and fall harvesting is followed, like clockwork, by the slower pace of summer and winter. This is the logic the reformers applied to the cultivation of young minds. We formulate new ideas by analogy, working from what we know towards what we don't, and what the reformers knew were the rhythms of the agricultural seasons. A mind must be cultivated, but not too much, lest it be exhausted. And what was the remedy for the dangers of exhaustion? The long summer vacation, a peculiar and distinctive American legacy that has had profound consequences for the learning patterns of the students of the present day. Summer vacation is a topic seldom mentioned in American educational debates. It is considered a permanent and inviolate feature of school life, like high school football or the senior prom. But let's consider a set of elementary school test score results and see if our faith in the value of long summer holidays isn't profoundly shaken. These test scores come from research led by the Johns Hopkins University sociologist Carl Alexander. Alexander tracked the progress of 650 first graders from the Baltimore public school system, looking at how they scored on a widely used math and reading skills exam called the California Achievement Test. The scores we're going to consider are for the first five years of elementary school, broken down by socioeconomic class, lower, middle, and high. If you look at the test score results, what you find is that the students from all three socioeconomic classes start in first grade with meaningful, but not overwhelming, differences in their knowledge and ability. The first graders from the wealthiest homes have a 32-point advantage over the first graders from the poorest homes. And by the way, first graders from poor homes in Baltimore are really poor. But by fifth grade, four years later, that initially modest gap between the rich and the poor has more than doubled. This achievement gap is a phenomenon that has been observed over and over again, and it provokes one of two responses. The first response is that disadvantaged kids simply don't have the same inherent ability to learn as children from more privileged backgrounds. They're not as smart. The second, slightly more optimistic conclusion is that in some way our schools are failing poor children. We simply aren't doing a good enough job of teaching them the skills they need. But here's where Alexander's study gets interesting, because it turns out that neither of those explanations ring true. The city of Baltimore didn't just give its kids the California Achievement Test at the end of every school year in June. It gave them the test in September, too, just after summer vacation ended. What Alexander realized is that the second set of test results allowed him to do a slightly different analysis. 
If he looked at the difference between the score a student got at the beginning of the school year in September and the score he or she got the following June, he could measure precisely how much that student learned over the school year. And if he looked at the difference between how a student scored in June and how they scored the following September, he could see how much the student learned over the course of the summer. In other words, he could figure out, at least in part, how much of the achievement gap is the result of things that happen during the school year and how much it has to do with what happens during summer vacation. Let's start with the school year gains. That is, how many points students' test scores rise from the time they start classes in September to the time they stop in June. These results tell a completely different story from the one suggested by the full-year results. The first set of test results made it look like lower-income kids were somehow failing in the classroom. But when you just look at the school year, you see that that isn't true. Over the course of five years of elementary school, poor kids actually outlearn the wealthiest kids 191 points to 186 points. They lag behind the middle-class kids by only a modest amount. And in fact, in one year, second grade, they learn more than anyone else. Now, let's see what happens if we just look at how reading scores change during summer vacation. Here again is a totally different story. In the summer after first grade, the wealthiest kids come back in September and their reading scores have jumped more than 15 points. The poorest kids come back from the holidays and their reading scores have dropped by almost four points. Poor kids may outlearn rich kids during the school year, but during the summer, they fall far behind. Now suppose we total up all the summer learning gains from first grade to fifth grade. The reading scores of the poor kids over those four summers go up by 0.26 points. When it comes to reading skills, poor kids, in other words, learn nothing when school is not in session. The reading scores of the rich kids over the summer holidays, by contrast, go up by a whopping 52 points. Virtually all of the advantage that wealthy students have over poor students is the result of differences in the way privileged kids learn when they are not in school. What are we seeing here? One very real possibility is that these are the educational consequences of the differences in parenting styles that we talked about in the Chris Langan chapter. Think back to Alex Williams, the nine-year-old whom Annette Leroux studied. His parents believe in concerted cultivation. He gets taken to museums and gets enrolled in special programs and goes to summer camp where he takes classes. When he's bored at home, there are plenty of books to read, and his parents see it as their responsibility to keep him actively engaged in the world around him. It's not hard to see how Alex would get better at reading and math over the summer. But not Katie Brindle, a little girl from the other side of the tracks. There is no money to send her to summer camp. She's not getting driven by her mom to special classes, and there aren't books lying around the house that she can read if she gets bored there's probably just a television. She may still have a wonderful vacation, making new friends, playing outside, going to the movies, having the kind of carefree summer days that we all dream about. None of those things, though, will improve her math and reading skills. And every carefree summer day she spends puts her further and further behind Alex. Alex isn't necessarily smarter than Katie. He's just outlearning her. He's putting in a few solid months of learning during the summer months while she watches television and plays outside. What Alexander's work suggests is that the way in which education has been discussed in the United States is backwards. An enormous amount of time is spent talking about reducing class size, rewriting curricula, buying every student a shiny new laptop, and increasing school funding, all of which assume that there is something fundamentally wrong with the job schools are doing. But think back to that second set of statistics that showed what happened between September and June. Schools work. The only problem with school for the kids who aren't achieving is that there isn't enough of it. Alexander, in fact, 
has done a very simple calculation to demonstrate what would happen if the children of Baltimore went to school year-round. The answer is that poor kids and wealthy kids would, by the end of elementary school, be doing math and reading at almost the same level. Suddenly, the causes of Asian math superiority become even more obvious. Students in Asian schools don't have long summer vacations. Why would they? Cultures that believe that the route to success lies in rising before dawn 360 days a year are scarcely going to give their children three straight months off in the summer. The school year in the United States is, on average, about 180 days long. The South Korean school year is 220 days long. The Japanese school year is 243 days long. One of the questions asked of test takers on a recent math test given to students around the world, for example, was how many of the questions they were asked in algebra, calculus, and geometry involved subject matter that they had previously covered in class. For Japanese 12th graders, the answer was 92%. That's the value of going to school 243 days a year. You have the time to learn everything that needs to be learned and less time to unlearn it. For American 12th graders, the comparable figure was 54%. For its poorest students, America doesn't have a school problem. It has a summer vacation problem. And that's the problem the KIPP schools set out to solve. They decided to bring the lessons of the rice paddy to the American inner city.